Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot com. Today, the spotlight is on Nettie Baker. Nettie is a journalist, archive manager, and the daughter of Ginger Baker, drummer for Cream, Blind Faith, and collaborator with artists as diverse as Fela Kuti and Bill Laswell. Nettie stepped into the spotlight to share stories and perspectives from her unique and volatile upbringing in the heart of rock and roll. You might also check out her books, Tales of a Rockstar's Daughter and More Tales of a Rockstar's Daughter, available most anywhere you buy books. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, so in advance of our call, um, I read a bunch of your stuff. I went and rewatched the film and uh so i'm sort of i'm 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 knee deep in baker lore right now (laughs) i feel sorry for you sorry about that (laughs) well i have to say nettie it's not the most comfortable place to be as an observer (laughs) (laughs) well imagine living it all your life (laughs) yeah yeah you know i and one of the things that struck me especially in your writing is that um I couldn't think of another way to say it. So at the risk of being indelicate, I'll just say it. It's almost struck me as a very American way of sort of sharing experience. I didn't, it was not, you, you were certainly not reserved um, in any kind well, of like stereotypical think, British English way. English people aren't reserved. It's just the way that you say it. Some people don't get the way that it's, it's just very, you know, it's sort of what we call gallows humor. It's a way of, uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's just being honest, really. And I just think how many people in the whole world are really honest. That's which is I think is a problem. And I think, you know, pragmatic dad used to go, oh, you're so pragmatic. Because he didn't really like to see the truth either too much. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard for people to look the truth in the face. But I've always, well, I've sort of had to. So I found it easier to live like that. Yeah, I think the um. I think gallows humor is definitely what I was struggling for when I was thinking about um, there is such a, a humorous strand through so much of what would otherwise be, I, I think, almost unfaceable. Some of it like I there were there were the, the film That's itself. That's the polite version. That is the polite version. It's much the reality is a hundred times worse than that. <laughs> yeah yeah that it's it's funny you say that because right before i rewatched the film i was listening to another interview with you where you said that where you said it was the i don't know if polite was the word you used it may have been but it was basically it was the nicer cleaner version yes, that yes. jay that jay was sort of sensitive yes. and i thought oh my god so rewatching it through that lens i thought oh wow that's that's heavy shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I mean, it's not conscious. I think people live a life, and particularly an addict who's in a world of, you know, super fame, which in a post, you know, World War Two society, which and it was new at that time. It's you, the people didn't know really what they were doing. 
you know, and people don't when they're just living their life in a very immediate way. They're not thinking of cause and effect and they're not thinking of how their actions are going to impact other people and they don't, they're not being deliberately evil. They're just pursuing their own course. And so I don't think you can massively say to people that they've literally, you know, sent everyone to the, <laughs> to the hangman on purpose but it's just that's how they live their life and they never and when I was in South Africa I said something to that to dad about when you know our childhood which is something I'm writing about at the moment the really early days um and I said to him you know it was what was it you know a nightmare living like that and do you know what that was like and he looked really surprised and he went away and he came back a bit later and he went well that was your mother's fault so it had never even crossed it. And neither of them did. I mean, my mother once held us at gunpoint. And she said, when I told my mother-in-law much later, not long before my mother died, she said to my mother-in-law, I don't know what Nettie's on about. She said, there's only a one in 12 chance of hitting someone with that gun. <laughs> <laughs> so the insanity wasn't confined to one half of the family tree. <laughs> One in charge, one in twelve charge. I'm hitting you anyways. I don't know what you're worried about. That was absolutely perfect, and just about wow. sums us up, really. Yeah, I would say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you I did you write both? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did, did you uh, did you write both books at once? Uh, yeah. Well, the tales and more tales are one book, yeah. but they they split it in half because it was in two parts. So they they wanted to make it two books. It isn't really. It's one book. Yeah. How do you view your role? Like, and what, what I mean by that is like, functionally, I get that you're, you know, you're looking after some of the online, pre, you know, you, you sort of run the online presence. And I would assume maybe there's some business aspect of things you have to deal with. But are you, are you interested in the notion of legacy? Or do you think that way? Are you the curator of an archive? Like what? what yeah, I mean, what, I've got a huge archive of you know, hard copy stuff, um, and I've got some. I've got I've got the super eights. So I've found some audio, which is with Universal at the moment. I mean, I'm sort of the at the moment because everything's up in the air since his death. Probate's not through. We're not anything to do with executors, and the the wife is, um, let's say, not really um, the best place to be dealing with. Um, the business aspects and and nothing is finalized because as i say the will is not even gone through probate yet so um that everyone works with me and they deal with me and the, the point of the legacy is me is i want it to be correct my dad said before he died oh, netty knows everything because i grew up with it i was there from the beginning and i was part of the whole thing you know i was there the silent person little child in the room when cream were formed when everything happened before with Graham Bond, with Jack, with Eric, with everything. I was there the whole time. And, you know, so I do know what happened. And I was with my dad right up till about 1982, completely with him all the time. And, wow. uh, you know, so, and then I, he, he always, you know, and then we started doing the website. And obviously he was really grateful with that. I just found some emails recently where he was saying, oh, I'm really grateful with what you're doing with it. So we put all that together. He was really pleased with that. My sister's the web tech, so she built it. So we've really been running his business for about 11 years and generating money for him, but which obviously he was giving to somebody else. And we never got any of it at all. 
So we are now looking to be a part of that and I'm hoping that that will continue on because at the moment we do generate. But obviously I have to go around and advertise my own stuff because that's my only and I've got a normal job as well, but it's only working in a in a bar. So it's, that's the only income for me is, is wow. from my writing. So I have to keep pushing that. And it's hard bloody work, but it, it does. I do get something, but it really is hard work. And from Hellraiser, because I split it with him 60-40. So at the moment, I'll sell 400 Hellraiser. That earns me 50 pounds. Mm. So, you know, people think, oh, you've got all this money. Oh, if only that were true. But, you know, I do. I'm very close and have good working relationships with, you know, with a lot of well-known people, et cetera, et cetera. And they recommend me and things like that. So that's great. And I've got, you know, fairly respected, I think. So it's quite good. Yeah. What was, um, what was your dad's relationship to money? Like, it seemed like he would come into it and go out of it very quickly. and But other than a very few sort of personal interests, it didn't, he didn't, it didn't look like he was lavishing it all on his lifestyle, per se. I mean, I guess there were... He, he lavished it all on polo. And I think, you know, that's what happened with him. He, in the early days when he didn't have any money, in the early days with Graham Bond, he used to do the accounts. I mean, he says it in Hellraiser, and I remember distinctly being at home and him sitting and doing those accounts. But obviously then, once Cream came along, I just think he thought, oh, well, everyone will deal, everyone else will deal with that, the office. He, you know, for ages, for years, until the early 70s, he's re he was reliant on the office, which was the Robert, Robert Stigwood organisation. And my mother used to tax the cars and things like that. He didn't do anything. And he just spent it. And his his grandfather, who on his his father's father was a master builder, who did the same thing apparently, would make it a load of money and then spend it till he had none. And then make a load of money again and then spend it till he had none. And he seemed to have that where he had no idea about future at all so he couldn't plan forward and then he just attracted people who just took it all and he just gave it to them and they just you know told him he was marvelous and he admitted it a hundred times it's, it's in print it's documented everywhere saying i'm absolutely hopeless i let people rip me off the whole time he wouldn't listen to his own family but he would always listen to someone who was going to rip him off and this happened to him constantly, but it was to do with drugs. I mean, in the 70s, he got into the polo thing, but he, he started making bad decisions because he became quite addicted again. And then he got off it, and he wasn't too bad when he moved to Italy. Then he moved to L.A., and he was in America, and he had his third wife. Although she was spending quite a bit of his money, she was also an American, so she's a bit more switched on. So his lifestyle was a bit more stable. But once he left America and she said, well, I'm not living in Africa and I don't blame her. Uh, and then he got on to medical morphine. He was dying to get back on that. And he got back on it, but prescribed through the doctors from his, for his arthritis and problems that he had. Then his decision making just flew out of the window again. And he just spent like five million pounds in five years. Gone. The whole lot gone. Some some people were having a nice time on that and probably still are. But yeah, well, and it's 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 sort of impossible to reconstruct that at this point, I would imagine, or or to do the forensic accounting to, <laughs> to yes, figure out. Yes, it is. Uh, it's uh, and you know it's it's very depressing for us children because we're not addicts. We haven't been bad. We've all had jobs and run our own lives and 
you know, my my daughter has a very responsible job and owns her own home. And she's not even 30. So we haven't been useless people. But to see that and see the iconic status that he has and you have nothing, it's galling. It is bloody galling. Yeah, it does. It does annoy me. And I don't care. You know, people say, I'll get your own. But yeah, well, actually, that's if your parents died, they would have left you something. You know what I'm saying? I mean, my yeah, mother did, but obviously that we had to split it between three of us. So. Yeah. And are you, um, what, what's it, what's the dynamic with your siblings? Are you all sort of in the same boat together in terms, like, are you a unit or do you get along? Uh, do you well, communicate? We know, no, we, we are a unit as in we've been through everything together. And, well, they're younger. So I was sort of have to shield them a lot of the time. Then I sort of left them and, which I still feel a bit guilty about because I was 18 and I was like, oh, I'm out. Um, and I left them in the war zone. But, um, yeah, no, we, I mean, we're a unit as in we're a unit where we help each other. I mean, we might have personal differences whenever it comes up, but we're 100% a unit in helping each other or, or, you know, getting stuff. We've got an auction coming up. Everything we have is between the three of us split equally at all times we do not disagree on that we have a whole hundred percent we know um so we yeah so we are a unit because we went through the thing together <laughs> we, yeah. we had the same parents so we we know yeah. we are i would say we are a unit i mean i don't say that we're best mates all dancing about together all the time i mean i do skype my sister every sunday Kofi drives me, drives us around the bend. You can't always talk to him because he's very irritating. But, you know, as in, um, as all younger brothers are, um, but, you know, but, uh, we are 100% supportive of each other in the important, in the important places. Yeah. I, I, I find, um, I find the Kofi aspect of the story very painful to, to, to just watch to see you know that that dynamic between a father and a son is and not to diminish either what you or your sister go through but it, i just find that particularly you know painful maybe it's just being a man having children being a son um it's it's really difficult to to see that sort of treatment and that that yearning for the closeness that um was sort of there and then taken away and it's tough it's a, it's a really difficult uh, he didn't situation. have a you know, my dad obviously lost his own father. He wanted us to, he liked us best when we were like living on a farm with him and doing all the farm work. He didn't, he didn't want us to, unless we were in a situation where we'd become massively famous in our own right and could then give him lots of money. He, when my brother got married and we went out to, he was in Denver then, and my sister and I were working, looking after the horses because he'd lost the groom, had been deported. So we were like, oh, God. And then we had to do all the mucking out. When we got dressed up for the day, he was talking to us when we were in our really old clothes. But when we got all dressed up, he just looked at us. And so, you know, and I said, oh, you look lovely, girls. He, for some reason, he didn't want that. He wanted you to be the slave or, or as my mother said, a jewel in his crown. Mm. Um and he sort of always said no one helped him, so he wasn't going to help them. I mean, he did help us on times. He did buy Kofi a truck. He did um, give me – he did give us things when he had some, but no more than a normal parent with a normal, say, middle-class wage would do. We never got millions of pounds, yeah. ever. Yeah. yeah. A couple of grand here and a couple of grand there. But 
but I think for my brother, you know, with how it was with my brother, it could have this could have been made better in the end. And I really had a plan for how I wanted to do things. But at the end, he was surrounded by three people in particular who were living off him, and they were not going to negotiate with me because I would have got them out and away. And they were not going to do that. So basically, he people made a very you know they worked very very hard at isolating him from his family in the last years of his life and the police and the social services were involved wow so it That's... was it was quite you know stressful for the family yes yeah i can imagine what's your relationship like with um the fans you know how do you interact i would imagine as part of promoting the book and and, and yeah. the work you do you must come into contact with a lot of a lot of fans and interested, you know, music lovers. Um, what's that like for you? Well, it's great. I mean, the fans who are, you know, um, they are predominantly, you know, North American <laughs> middle-aged guys, really, and some ladies. <laughs> but you know, they're, they're 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 really devoted fans. There are some UK fans and a lot in Europe and some in Japan and South America and you know, they're worldwide, but. A lot of the fans are really, really nice, and I know what they like, and they all know me, and you know they're all on the page, and they all, you know, and then new ones come along. It's people that really want to know and are really interested, really love the music, and really understand it. And and I and then a lot of people I tell them off, and they're like, "Oh, you're so rude," and I'm like, "Well, you know, I'm a baker. What do you expect?" And they're like, "Well, at least we get the real experience," you know. <laughs> Um, because, but I do know what, you know, I was there, so I do know, ask me, and if there's something, you know, sometimes they send, they tell me things I don't know, and sometimes they send me pictures that I haven't seen, which is great, and they're really, really, most of them, I think, are great. Other people just get on, you know, say something stupid, I just block them by, I haven't got time for it. But, um, no, I mean, I over the 10 years I've been doing that page, I've become to know them, and I know what they like, and make them laugh and there are a lot of loyal fans on there so you know i think i get on really well with them yeah yeah it is um it's very interesting how you talked about that notion of you can learn stuff from the fans as well it's unbelievable how there are people that have these pockets of knowledge and like how they've how they've managed to you know they, they find recordings or they just they know things that i've seen artists themselves be surprised by things fans can remind them of you know well i think some of them are really lovely stories about how we met them in a bar and they said this or you know i met them at a petrol station there was one today oh we'd you know in in england well we, we had a coat my other bandmate had a coat like your dad and we used to meet them in our bandwagons having chips on the north road or something like that you know and, and some lovely little stories and some lovely little photos come up with little stories to them which are really personal and obviously if you weren't there and things like that and oh your dad did this or that it's really those are the stories that i like the best actually the little personal stories of this is what happened and and often they are he's been really nice to them obviously there's hundreds of thousands of ways <laughs> he's sworn at everyone but uh but there are some really lovely little stories and it's people who take the time to sort of really think uh, you know, and those are the, the best. So like you're saying, it is amazing the things you find out and think, well, I didn't know that. It's, it's really helpful to me to keep the legacy going. So, Yeah. Well, a, a few things that struck me. Um, one was uh, just to be reminded of 
how short-lived so many of these iconic projects were. Right? The, the, the lifespan of Cream, the lifespan of Blind Faith, um, not only the lifespan, but the, the sheer number of people in the Air Force. <laughs> it's like he went from bands of three to four people to like 50 people. <laughs> oh, God, that was a crazy time, I can tell you. I tell you though, that music is so powerful and phenomenal. Like I, I it was, uh, I just to be reminded and to see some of the film footage. That was another thing that was fascinating was how much, how much film footage there was. You don't often see that of from artists of that era, um, especially ones who were making such complicated music and or just such different and interesting music. Like the fact that it was on television and that it was recorded and filmed and. Um, just really amazing to see and um I, I hope there is an opportunity for for more of that stuff to come out sort of commercially and be available to people because it feels it feels important in terms of just the, the canon you know the, the the canon of music of that era i'd hate to see it be lost um I, i'm also curious about what once you left home like you, you you mentioned you know you sort of left at 18 and you went out into the world and you experienced punk and you, you know, but you also, you know, you went to college and you studied and, you know, how did you, how did you make your way in the world in sort of that early part of your adult life? How did you, how did you establish you? Well, I mean, the punk thing did that. And I mean, I didn't go and study until I was in my late thirties. I mean, and, you know, after I'd been married, had a child, all that, I didn't do that because I, I, I didn't really think I was capable of doing that. It was a complete, you know, surprise the way that came about. But in the early, I mean, the punk book, the books, my two books are really about finding that identity, your separate identity to yourself. And for me, those punk years were the time that really did it. Uh, and that's why they were really important because it was me, you know, and it's sort of an anchor that I always drop back to thinking, obviously you get subsumed in it when I'm having to do all this fan 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 page stuff and you know think who you are and what is it that you like and uh, you know that is still an anchor to me to think well that was me being me and I've literally got some art you know I've done produced something which is about me being me and so you know that's when I first did it and then later on obviously you know it gave me a lot of confidence when I did study and I got my degree I got a first and then I did a master's so that was, a, you know, again, that was a big boost. But that, that didn't happen until I was much, much older. Mm. And, like, I, I don't know, it's just interesting to hear you say that uh, that also was sort of a continuation of, of sort of forging your identity. How do you think of, how do you think of that now? Like, who, who, who's Nettie Baker now? Are you a writer? Are you the child of a rock star? Are you a mom? Like, what is your sense of self? I don't know, a bossy old woman, I think, really. <laughs> That's about it. I'm glad to where to sum it up, I'm afraid. You, know, so you either like me or you don't like me, and I don't care, you know, I'm quite a pink. And my, my daughter, the mothering, Mother's Day card, we had Mother's Day in March here, you know, earlier, and the Mother's Day card I got from her said, thank you for not being boring, which I thought was quite good. Yeah, that's a, that's a great compliment, I think. Yeah. That's a great compliment. So, um, you know, I hang, I just try and I don't really like being this age. I want to be 25. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I sort of try my best to have 
have a good time. That's really how I could sum myself up. In between, obviously, you have to try and get some money so you can live, which is, you know, I'm a bit like my dad like that. I don't want to be as bad as him because I don't want to spend all my, you know, every waking day of the last years of his life. Well, how do I get money? 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 That's all he was ever worried about. And then he died at the end. So I don't want to be as bad as that. But it is at the moment it is a bit like well, you have to think about how you're going to get some money in. So. It's a bit like that for me. I'm not. I haven't got a pension. I didn't have a career, so it's uh, you know I I could only muck out horses, and I just looked after horses until I got physically I couldn't look after horses. So I just work in you know my, when I go to work, I just work in a pub. I serve beer to people behind bars. That's what I do. Yeah, yeah. Which Are I like. You... I don't mind doing it, but it doesn't pay very well. Yeah, yeah. Does music play a role in your life? Are, do you, are you a fan? Are you a listener? Uh, well, I've, yeah, I mean, there's a band that uh, a friend of mine who's in my books, actually, but she's got a band, obviously, I haven't been out for a while, called the Caesarians, and they're <laughs> really, really good. They're sort of influenced by a lot of Nick Cave type thing, but they're unusual. They're very, very good, and I listen to them. They're new music, which I really like. She writes and arranges. Her father was a jazz drummer that my dad knew called Johnny Armitage. And my dad knew him in the 50s. So their music's really, really good. And uh, there's another guy that my daughter got me into, and he's called Patrick Wolfe. He's also very, I mean, Justine from Caesarians is a, a classically trained pianist and uh, violin player, viola player. She's very, very good. She teaches piano, so she's a proper musician who arranges all her stuff. And then this guy, Patrick Wolf, his name is, uh, he's also absolutely, he does sort of niche shows when you go and see him. They're always sold out, but they're in like church, old churches and places like that. He's got, he's got a very cult following. He's, again, multi-instrumentalist, beautiful voice, very interesting for new stuff. And then, yeah, I mean... Otherwise, we just have a laugh with old stuff. You know, I, you know, we go to like adult weekenders where they have seventies things and all the rest of it. So, I, and I go through phases. I still really, you know, listen to a lot my sort of seventies music that that I listened to in the past and my more punky stuff like the Jam. I mean, I love Paul Weller and I've seen him live a lot in the past. Uh, so there, I do sometimes go to things and see things, but I wouldn't say, you know, it, I find music's too emotional. I get too emotional now when I listen to music. I find, yeah. If I listen to a song I haven't heard for a while, I'll just burst into tears. And it might be something completely, you know, innocuous, but it seem, I seem to have a massive emotional reaction to music at the moment. It's sort of like, I don't think I really want to go there all the time. Yeah, I understand that. I've, I've, I've actually, I've made the... The comment to people that um, I have a fleet of uh, I have a fleet of time machines and they're all parked on my shelf and it's my record yes. collection. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You have to be care and you have to be careful with that. Like yes. the melancholy, you can get lost in the melancholy, and sometimes it sort of feels good, like a warm blanket, and other times it's a it's a it's a spiral. <laughs> well, I mean, something and something that's just so amazing to hear them again when you've known them. I mean, like, like I was saying in the book, the Jethro Tull, I mean, Aqualong I like. But then later we got into Stormwatch, which was an album that he brought out when we were going to see him in the 80s, early 80s. And I listened to um, The Flying Dutchman, which is a track off the Stormwatch album. And I just thought, oh, my God. It's, and it was so big. I knew I'd like it because it means all you people having a nice time, by the way. 
<laughs> is coming for you. It's and, coming, yeah. And I think it's a very prescient, you know, he knew, you know, it really tells you what was going to happen in the future and it is happening now. And so I, it was wonderful to hear that, but it was really emotional to hear something like an old friend, you know, that you knew, you knew it so well and uh, the, the emotion, the brilliance of it, absolutely. I love Jess Rotel, I think. I met, and I met Ian Anderson. I was so excited. Oh, my God, it was fantastic. At um, the first Jack Bruce memorial they did in 2015 ian anderson was on that and uh, i got my picture taken with him i was like yes but yeah <laughs> i mean you're right it is your time machine the music is the time machine but yeah yeah um well it's very it's very interesting to me that uh you know not to it's hard not to sort of play armchair psychologist i think in some of these conversations but um it's very interesting that the most emotional part of the documentary for your father was when he was talking about his relationships with the other drummers and that he, you know, he started crying and it was about music and about how important it was to have relationships with those musicians. And, Although um, my, my mother would say that was um, crocodile tears, she would call that. <laughs> so he well, dialed we that like, up for well, it's a shame you're, you're not a bit more emotional about your own family apart from some old blokes that play the drums but never mind yeah um you know uh, he had a disconnect i think he had a form of autism uh or something like that is the problem because he had a disconnect with actual relationships with people and he couldn't really form them. And he, his closest relationship was with Eric Clapton, I mean, without a doubt. And that um, he had a very close relationship with. He could only form it with few people. I mean, he said with Fela Kuti at the time, I mean, Fela was not a particularly nice person, but Dad seemed to like him. And then, and then Dad went off with all the aristocracy and Fela didn't want to speak to him anymore. And Dad couldn't understand why. He had no idea why it upset you and this obviously happened with Eric during the cream of blind faith things he was like I had no idea Eric was annoyed with me you know <laughs> but he didn't know how he affected other people so if you said look that's enough he, he would be surprised yeah. I think he did have some sort of you know that spectrum where he couldn't have a relationship with them he couldn't read another person's emotional responses so he just trampled over it whereas i think music he could connect obviously and that's music was like a savant you know the music was the only thing where he could and with his art i mean he did some wonderful art some of it we're, we're sending to auction on the 5th of may but some of obviously there's one or two bits that i've kept because i really like them there's a beautiful i haven't got it with me at the moment beautiful oil painting he did of like you know, going along in a bandwagon at dawn and all the lights on along the motorway. I mean, he was good at art, very good at art and poetry and stuff like that. So he could, within art, he could communicate, but he couldn't communicate at all with other people in any other way. So perhaps he felt he had the, you know, the drum duets with Art Blakey and, you know, he became friends with those people and he felt, you know, that's how he expressed, he could express himself. So perhaps that's why he felt that way. Yeah, it was. It, it definitely begged the question of what would be, have become of this man had he not made his way into music. Um, God, is that yeah. Well, I know a few people who I think, yeah, he would have ended up like them. Yeah. So I don't think he would have ended up particularly well if he if he hadn't. Uh, yeah. Um, 
Did your experiences give you any reticence or apprehension around being a parent? Did you feel you, you know, like how, how did you think about that? Did you, were you worried about sort of the legacy that you might instill in your, your child? You know, how, how do you, how did you, were you afraid to be a parent? Not really. I mean, I, I didn't ever want children. It wasn't my idea. I was talked into it. I just said, oh, it was, you know, it was what I had to do to wear a wedding dress. So I said, all right, then. Uh, and it, it was something I, my mother said, you won't like it. And, I, you know, we, not, we, I'm not maternal and I never have been. Obviously, I did like my own baby. Um, and, you know, it's like for me, it's any sort of job you do. I mean, I prefer animals. But, you know, it's like if you commit yourself to do something, you're going to do it properly. And I did that. I mean, obviously, like all children, I mean, she's she's not a child. She's 28 now. But, you know, you get, oh, well, you did this wrong and you did that. But, you know, on the main, I, I think I did quite well. I mean, I don't think it was me. I just think I was lucky to have a marvellous child. She is exceptional. She is exceptional. She's exceptionally intelligent. And she really didn't ever give me any trouble. But I suppose that's because I don't mind having someone covered in tattoos and piercings with blue hair. You know, it doesn't bother me. And she's got a perfectly good job with that. So, um, you know, I wasn't ever, and I didn't put any restraints on her because my, the one thing about my parents is they were terrible for if you were a small child, but for a teenager, they were the parents from, from heaven. Mm. I mean, God, I just always wanted to go out with my mum and dad because they were having a great time. They let me drink. It was fantastic. If it got told off, it was great. You know, it really was <laughs> good times. So, you know, I, I wasn't worried. I mean, for being a parent, I would just be like, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. And I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I mean, I cannot. And we are all hypocrites at times. We can't help it as a human condition. But hypocrisy is the one thing that sends me up the wall. People who've done really bad things and don't tell their children what they've done and then tell their children off for doing them, that sort of thing, and saying, oh, you know, rules, you've got to come in at this time. I've never understood that because as soon as you tell me not to do something, I can tell you 100% certain I will do it. Yeah. My, my dad said to me, oh, the teenager, he said, you can drink, you can mess around with boys, but you can never smoke. So what did I do? I smoked, didn't I? <laughs> and then he caught me. We were in a pub, and I was 17 by then, so I was well over the age where he could tell me not to smoke. And we were in a pub, and it had a bar, two bars with a mirror. And he was in that bar, and I was in this bar, and I lit up a cigarette, and he saw me through the <laughs> I was like, whoops. And then after that, he was like, got any fags, got any cigarettes, got any cigarettes all the time. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, but anything in the world, if you tell me not to do it, I'm going to do it. So, I, as a parent, I thought I'm never going to be, you know, I just, if she did things I didn't agree with, I used to say, well, you know, you might regret this one day. And at least, you know, just to say I've told you that this might not be a good idea, but off you go. Yeah. At least I said it. You know, tattoos and all that, I don't care. I mean, I like them. I haven't got any myself. But it's like, well, I, you know, I, you're not putting them on me. So what's the problem? I don't see why people go mad. You know, no one's asking you to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I don't know. A parent, I don't really think about it. I mean, you know, you can never be the perfect parent. So I, 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 I haven't got much of a conscience with it. I don't spend my life going, oh, my wonderful parent. You know, I, 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 she's my friend, and that's how I think of it. I don't now think that I'm her mother. And sometimes I forget. Even she goes, you did have a child. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be careful what you say, yeah. <laughs> I, 
I don't even think about it really. So yeah, it's not in my thing. When people say are you the mother, I get really cross. I go, no, I'm a person. And you know who taught me that? Tom Hanks. Because we, we met him at the reunion. He's a big cream fan and he's a big ginger fan, is Tom Hanks. And he was talking to my daughter, who was small then. She was about, I don't know, 12. And I just came along and said, oh, I'm the mother. And he said, never say that. He said, it's like saying I'm the pizza. So I thought, <laughs> yeah, you're right, Tom. So that was good advice from Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's actually interesting. About, I, forgot, I saw him uh, do the induction for uh, the Dave Clark Five at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, so he definitely has an attraction for drummers. Um, when I was a child, that's why I was much more interested in the Dave Clark Five. Well, I loved them. And the Beatles and that. I wasn't interested in my dad's music. It was too, you know, it was too sort of highbrow for a child. Yeah. Well, you said it early on as well. Um, it's it's to a large extent, especially Cream. Like that's kind of like I think of that as guy music, <laughs> the aggression and <laughs> some of the some of the the jamming. And I don't know if it's fair to say that, but that that's just my perception. Um, I mean, they were definitely sensitive songs and, and and another side to them but i think of it as prototypical guy music <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i don't i mean i do really really like it and i do get it but it, you know if you're saturated with something you obviously you know you're going off and you know i've always been very middle of the road and you know very i we i don't know it's it's gone now but i don't know whether you had woolworths in america but we had woolworths was like the shop, you know, the cheap shop, but it's, we don't have a, have one anymore. But I always say there's Woolworths in my soul, which means I'm not, you know, I've got a very, well, a sort of common element to me that's not very intellectual, <laughs> even though I'm supposed to be an intellectual. But, you know, it's just like uh, there are a lot of the, some mainstream things, you know, obviously I liked. And obviously, you know, if you're three or four years old, you're going to prefer the Beatles, basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's almost something, uh, it's very bizarre, there's almost something like at a molecular level how children are attracted to the Beatles. Like it's it's so bizarre how little kids, um, like they, it's, 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 I can't, I can't, I can't I'm quantify sure the it. Be thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they hook them young. <laughs> something all those bands i mean in the 70s bands i mean when i was you know about 10 i loved the osmonds and david cassidy and then we we went through we went to slade from there but i mean i still have that i still i don't want to, when i go to gigs as well now I, you know like old punk bands you know i can't stand old punks because in my mind punks are not old who wants to see loads of fat old bald old men pretending to wear like leather waistcoats trying to sing punk songs just shut up i don't want to look i want to look at young blokes in tight leather or whatever you know with long hair and some makeup on yeah, thanks i'll be looking <laughs> at that you know uh, if it does i mean i did see um i there's a guy who who um he's got a like a glam tribute band and he's older than me but he has all his hair done like rod stewart he looks really good he's got the gear on i mean yeah that's okay we'll have a look at that but, you know, it's got to be visually interesting to me. So, and I think um, a lot of the guys, I think, you know, like the Led Zeppelin people and all that, I think they capitalised <laughs> straight away on lots of <laughs> teenage girls like us. And I think that's what they they did. They just thought, oh, well, we've got girls running after us. But I think musically, a lot of them wanted to get away from that. Yeah, yeah. Well, What's uh What's next for you? What's the next project? What's the next uh, What's the next thing you're doing? What are you working on? 
Well, there's so many things in our, we're like Thunderbirds of Acres. It's anything can happen in the next half hour. And it really is. You could not see me for two days and I've, uh, 10 million things have happened. This person's phoned up that. There's a drama going on every second. I don't know how, but it happens. But um, Well, I mean, just uh, carrying on promoting the books, which have got a lot of life in them because, they, you know, a lot of people don't know they're out there. And other people go, oh, all you do is promote the book. And then someone comes along and goes, you should write a book. Like, oh, Christ. Well, <laughs> did your, your dad should have written a book. It's like, oh, God. You know, so it's hard getting it out there. And you have to just keep push, push. And I'm waiting for something to come along. Well, this is a good, I'm going to do a screenplay for this, or this would make a good TV series or something like that. You know, you, Patty Boyd read it and really liked it. And that really helped because I'm hoping that she'll say to other people who are a bit higher up there, you know, I, I need to get keep getting them going round. So, I mean, I kept Hellraiser came out in 2009, I think, and I've kept that in print. If I hadn't been on that, it would be out of print now. Mm. That's so, hard to believe, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, and it's a really good book. People don't know it's there because we, we just couldn't. It was really hard to get. If you've got nothing, it's very hard to push and do stuff. And the same thing, you can't. There is someone that nicked the rights who's got taken my intellectual rights to something I did write, and it's got my mother's artwork on it, and they did the both sign a contract with me and my dad. Behind my back, just signed it with my dad, and is now advertising it and selling it on Amazon, and I'm getting nothing for it, which is another reason I want that. See, we are like, if your parents are Rod Stewart or the Rolling Stones or Eric Clapton, you've got a machine, that you've got a wall of people around you, yeah. and they don't let these bad things happen to you. We're just out there, and people just think, <sighs> they just leech off you and rip you off, and that's what I've become now with someone who's learned and now they don't like it because they can't play that game with me because I'm not having it either. It's either my way or it's not happening at all, and that's it. That's it. And, yeah. and that's what I'm working on, just pulling that. And I'm writing something else which is about the very early years, which is something I'm doing for the fans, really, because, you know, it's all when Eric was around our house and when we went to America and all those things that happened, some of the extra stories that he didn't put in and that I found out through fans and things like that. I can put everything in. But it's, I find it's very depressing doing it, so it's quite hard. Yeah. Are, are there, um, are there, do you have peers in terms of the community of other children of, of people from that era that you share these experiences with or just, I would imagine there's, it's very hard to just talk to an average person at the pub and say, you know, here's what I was going through in the 70s. How about you when they were home, you know? <laughs> <laughs> doing something domestic like do you you know do you find that there's that camaraderie or are you isolated in that experience well in the early days I didn't know any of them because we'd lost all the money and that's what my books are about so and, yeah. and that is also about the struggle of where do you fit in yeah. and why punk was good for me because it didn't matter so yeah. you could have been from anywhere and anything and you did fit in in, in the, the the part I was in anyway but as I've grown older, I mean, yes, there are, I mean, I'm quite, but they're not people that I see all the time, but they're people I communicate with, and particularly when my dad died. I mean, obviously, uh, Lemmy's son, Paul Inder, he lived with us when we got evicted, so my brother knew him, but I've spoken to him quite a lot on, you know, messenger and message. Um, I know Charlotte Martin, so I know Scarlett Page quite well, she's 
fantastic and you know we buy we buy her jewelry and stuff and she read my book and advertised it and you know we see them sometimes socially and you know charlotte her mother who was with eric and then with jimmy page so we yes we know them and obviously we were always friendly with janet bruce because you know we knew her from right from the beginning i mean kofi and malcolm have a sort of my dad and jack a bit relationship so that's sometimes difficult but yeah i mean i do have had and spoke to the other one is martha rafferty who was friendly with my sister jerry rafferty's daughter and she had a lot of problems when her dad died she had to take his girlfriend to court who tried to get everything but there was like a two million ish you know there was a lot of money as a legacy so you can get lawyers to work for you when there's loads of money to be had uh, I can't do anything, anything, because there's no money to be made like that. There isn't any. People don't really understand that. But so, <clears throat> but for how we grew up, yes, I have <clears throat> do have those people who, yeah, we have the stories. But I don't know, like, loads of them. But the few that I do know, as I say, Jerry Rafferty, Lemmy, Jimmy Page type, those. So I know their kids. So uh, when we talk, yeah, we do at least have something in common. But yeah. most of my friends, I my close friends, I've known since, you know, my oldest friend I've known since 1968, my other friend I met in 1971, and I still see them all the time. So I don't have to explain anything to them. They came round my house. They knew what was going on. So they know what my life's been. Yeah, yeah. Well, Nettie, we're going to make sure the, um, to promote the books and uh, and uh, if there's any in particular links or anything you want to send me um, to make sure we're we're sending traffic to the place where it's most beneficial to yeah, you, please well, let the, me know. The um, verified Facebook page, the Ginger Baker page with the blue tick, and the uh, and obviously the gingerbaker.com and the kofibaker.com, which is, you know, that's really helpful to him because he's got, I mean, for people that are interested in what music's going on now and if they want to, if drummers want to talk about drums, I mean, to go in there and he's got Facebook pages and they can ask him stuff and all the rest. He knows more technical stuff. But our, our website's in the middle of being, we're doing stuff to it. But obviously, you know, my sister being the web tech, she's got a full-time job. She works at the ING Bank in Amsterdam. So she's, mm. you know, every my, my daughter works, and she's a campaign manager for a charity, so a big charity in England. And but she's so she's going to help with the stuff that we're doing. But obviously, she's got a full time job at the moment, so you know, we're all doing other things as well. So it's hard to keep it all going. So, so yes, if people are the websites, it's good, but it needs some tweaking. But I mean, it's got all the info, we've got all the archives, press archives, drum gear you know, some good photos and stuff like that on there. So, but the Facebook page is, is the place to come and, you know, any book titles, just type the title into your search engine and it will tell you where to buy it. But, but right. they're very good. <laughs> yes, they are. They are. Thank you. Um, well, thank you for your time. Um, thank and you. thank you for sharing your experience. It's really great to talk with you and, um, we'll let you know when this is going to go live. It's going to be a few weeks, but we'll let you know. And, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, just let me know. <laughs> All right. Take care, Nettie. Bye. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Nettie Baker. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. 
Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Bye.